Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And while it was a rather non-eventful week for most of our local teams, the sports world was captured Sunday by Phil Mickelson's unforgettable Sunday at the PGA Championship. So right after our look back at the Astros week, we'll be joined by a Houston sports legend who you rarely hear from anymore. Can't wait to get to it. But for now, I'm joined by my co-host and regular sidekick, maybe a Houston sports legend, at least in our parts anyway, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, the Astros looked so bad this weekend, you made us wait an extra day before you'd even talk about it? Yeah. I, what can I say, Robert? The bullpen is in shreds, you know, walking and scoring inherited runners, you know, uh, just all the kinds of ineffectiveness. And then there's the Los Angeles Dodgers, San Diego Padres, Boston Red Sox coming to town. I mean, it should be, you know, an exciting nine-game homestand, only if the Astros win most of those games, though. So, yeah, I guess I was putting off the inevitable by waiting an extra day, Robert. This bullpen is enough of a pain as it is, but when Javier and McCullers need 300 pitches to get through the first four innings, it doesn't help any. No, it really doesn't. I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, the the bullpen is ineffective as it is, Robert, is, is just being used way too much. And, you know, what was so weird about Christian Javier is all the walks that he gave up on Sunday, there were six of them, all six of them were to left-handed hitters. So, I mean, it's just some weird stuff going on. Uh, it just, I, I mean, how much worse is it going to get when you've got two of the best pitching staffs in baseball coming to town really you know the Red Sox staff is pretty good too but the Dodgers and Padres their staffs they strike out like 10.3 batters per game and the Astros strike out less than any team in baseball but man something's got to give but yeah that that bullpen I just we can't say enough bad things about it and only Paredes has as many walks 10 as he does outs Brian Abreu He's allowed eight runs, 10 hits, and eight walks during the month of May. You know, Brooks Raley, he's pitched well lately, so he's in a little bit of a bright spot, just one earned run while walking three and striking out 12 and six and two-thirds innings. But, man, it just most of it is nothing but bad stuff. It's interesting you mentioned Brian Abreu because that game that goes to extra innings, Abreu – looked like he was scared to throw it, guys. He nearly threw oh, something like almost seven wild pitches. And, Stephen, if somebody's going down with all these pitchers starting to get healthy potentially and coming up, Brian Abreu, his his, his uh, spot on the roster is on the line. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd have to say you're right, Robert. And it is going to be interesting to see, you know, when you're going to have Framber Valdez coming back pretty soon. You're going to have Jake Odorizzi coming back very soon. And then you've got, you know, the other pitchers further down the line, uh, Josh James, Austin Pruitt. You know, this bullpen is certainly not going to be the same as it is now. But I just, I, I still don't have a lot of confidence that, uh, you know, even when those guys come back, that it's going to be, that the problem is just suddenly going to be fixed, you know, because it, there's no guarantee they're going to be effective when they do get back in there, especially right off the bat, even though in the, in the cases of Odorizzi and Valdez, they've had some pretty good rehab assignments. It's, you know, it's still not major league hitting. So yeah, I, I mean, it's a long season and that is the one thing I cling to Robert. This is only May and the things that look in tatters now may not look that way in June, but 
just doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for you right now. They got a spot start from minor leaguer Tyler Ivey Friday. So I just wanted to break it down a little bit and get your thoughts on this, Stephen, because, you know, from my perspective, he didn't appear to be somebody that I'm going to bank on down the road as fastball and curveball appeared just average as far as velocity and movement. His changeup was bad. I need to see at least one upper echelon pitch to see real hope in a young gun like him. Yeah, and, and, you know, that start was emotional for him because, of course, he grew up in the Dallas area. He went to watch Rangers games at, you know, Globe Life Park and Arlington Stadium and all these other places. So it, it was more of an emotional thing for him. He looked good the first couple of innings. But I, I think it, it obviously didn't take long for even the Rangers hitters to figure him out. He, he's got average stuff at best. And he's somebody that, you know, is intriguing. You can keep your eye on. But I, I don't think you're going to peg him as you know, a, a, the Astros' number one pitching prospect is going to come in and save the day anytime soon. Alebmus Diaz goes down with a hamstring problem. It's kind of amazing how much a utility player gets hurt for the Astros. Well, and you know that's the thing. Alebmus Diaz, he's had a, a pretty good year, you know, considering that he is a utility player. But the one bugaboo for him the past couple of years, he's been with the Astros is the injuries, and that's obviously why he is not an everyday player. He's a utility player. But when he's in there, he's been effective. And, of course, you sent Rebel Garcia down because you had to. Uh, so, yeah, that really hurts the Astros. The bench that Dusty Baker has right now uh, is is very thin at this point, and the injury to Diaz didn't help. Yeah, I've got a new long name for Aledmus Diaz, long nickname. I call him Aledmus Arian Yao Wall Fuller Gordon Diaz. And you can probably just keep adding to the list, especially if you put all the Rockets players in there. You'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd take up a whole book. Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I don't know if you can ever count on the guy, but that's it's good for, that he's only a role player. And, and you hope the Astros can get out of this funk quickly because – this schedule coming up, it's a killer. The next three series are the Dodgers, Padres, and Red Sox, three of the four best teams in baseball record-wise. Then they face the pesky Blue Jays, some guy named Springer's on that team, and then they got the Red Sox again. You know, I, I mean, I do believe in the old axiom that uh, regular seasons and championships are not won in May, but you have to admit, Robert, it, we're deep enough into the season where I think we're going to start to see what is this team really made of and these next nine games, I do believe, are going to tell that story. Sure, they can turn it around in June, July, and August if they don't fall, fall too far behind. I think the saving grace for the Astros right now is that they are in a weak division. You know, they're, they're in the AL West, and they still have a chance to win it. They're only, what, a game and a half back. You know, so unless the A's reel off a 20-game winning streak and the Astros lose, their, you know, 10 of their next 12 or something— it, it's not going to kill them if they don't come through. But let's let's be honest. You know, you're going to be facing three of the best teams in baseball. You've got to at least stack up pretty well against these guys if you're going to have a chance to really salvage the rest of the season, I think. I'm going to go a little bit to the side on this story, but we're connecting it back to what you and I were just discussing Steven, guess who got accused of stealing signs illegally by a major league catcher this week? I did not see that, but it's probably somebody I know and love. <laughs> well, maybe Astros fans remember this guy. He was with the team for maybe a split second back in 2016. Eric Kratz, 
He has been around the major leagues a little bit as a catcher, and he says the Rockies stole signs in 2018 using TV technology and see if this sounds familiar, banging on a massage bench. So, you know, a little bit of the Astros design for the Rockies, but that's not the bombshell. He also said the Astros are not the only team who's been to multiple World Series recently and have stolen signs. So basically you could infer, Stephen, I think he means the Dodgers. And is that really a surprise, Robert? Yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine last week and, you know, he keeps harping on this whole Astros cheating thing. And and he's just so incensed that teams like the Yankees and, and the Red Sox who, you know, really got a slap on the hand and then teams like the Yankees where it's like they're they're refusing to open letters that are supposedly in the possession of Major League Baseball and just so many different things. I mean, let's be honest. I think most teams, to some degree or other, try to get an edge by stepping over a line. And it's all a matter of not only who gets caught, but who is the favored one. And, you know, in his case, he feels like the Astros are never going to be the favored ones. They're always going to be hated because they were the first ones to get caught. So I don't think it's any surprise that guys are stepping forward and saying, oh, so-and-so cheated and you know, this guy play, you know, it, it's it's always going to be somebody that's going to be accused. And question is, you know, until the evidence comes forward, then that's all it's going to be is speculation. Yeah. When you said that, it just hit me what the Astros are, because you said, you know, there's a letter that refuses to be opened and that we're waiting to get opened and we're waiting for this information to come forward. The Astros are kind of like the Lee Harvey Oswald of the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> well, yeah, that's quite a that's quite an analogy, but I, I guess I'd have to say it's accurate. You know, and then of course, what's going to make these next nine games intriguing is you've got you know a guy who just loves well, actually two guys who just love the Astros, Joe Kelly and Trevor Bauer, and then you've got uh, you know Alex the guy who manages the Red Sox again, <laughs> again. Yeah, that, that's a key word there. Again, after he was named in the Astros cheating scandal, you got all these guys coming to town to play against the, the Astros. So, yeah, it's just going to add more drama to what, what will probably be a pretty full Minute Maid part and it might actually be pretty loud for a change. Meanwhile, Mike fires in a cave somewhere. And, you know, by next yeah. week, uh, they could have... Listen to this. They could have Fromber, Urquidy, and Odorizzi back. All three guys, uh, according to the timeline that I heard from James Click, maybe all of them in the rotation, although one of them might end up in the bullpen. Even Blake Taylor could be back from his ankle injury. You might have forgotten that he's still around, and if they think he's a better option than one of their struggling relievers, then maybe Blake Taylor is the guy that yanks, for instance, a Brian Abreu out of the bullpen or something like that. Well, it would be nice if it just one of these reinforcements, in, internal reinforcements, will just step up and take control of this bullpen. Because, you know, even Ryan Stanek hasn't been quite as effective. And uh, aside from Ryan Presley, he was your most effective pitcher. Uh, the trade deadline isn't until July. So, uh, you know, the Astros are probably going to make some moves as far as pitching goes, especially in the bullpen. But between now and then, that's a long time. So somebody's just got to step up and, and, and take control of it. And hopefully one of these guys will do it. I, I really think, Robert, and I know I've said this before, but, you know, I, I just felt a little shaky going into the season with so many young guys 
coming back from great years last year, you knew some of them were going to regress. But man, I I think it's been worse than, than what I actually believed it would be before the season started. How about the old guys regressing? Joe Smith, uh, he's regressed. Uh, that doesn't help you. But, you know, Brooks Raley, who was a guy that I thought would regress um, and was bad early, he's starting to turn around a little bit. He, he's been a good story recently. Yeah, I did mention him when I was going over the bullpen that, you know, a lot of his success has been against right-handed hitters, but at this point, we'll take what you can get. And as far as Joe Smith, yeah, I, I was definitely surprised. I know he took a year off, and that probably throws off his timing, at least at the beginning, but I think we're far enough into the season that we're starting to see what these guys are going to be made of the rest of the year. They've, they've had enough time to get it going, and in Joe Smith's case, it just hadn't happened. Boy, I missed the Jordan Alvarez that scared teams. He hadn't quite looked right in the last week and I'm not sure anybody more than him and Altuve Steven I don't know if there's anybody else that has a ripple effect on this lineup more than those two guys you know and it, and it's amazing when when somebody like that goes into a slump you notice it probably more than you would notice someone else I mean Jordan Alvarez I, now if it got to Yuli Gurriel proportions from last year I think we should definitely start to worry but I'm just not worried about it right now. I mean, he definitely needs to cut down on the strikeouts. He's he's just swinging at everything right now. It, it, that's when you know you're in a funk. But I that's the one thread of confidence I'm holding on to, that Jordan is going to come back and hopefully come back soon from all that. Yeah, he needs to come back like now. And, and yeah. one positive yeah. that appears to be a little under the radar for the Astros, uh, I don't know if everybody's noticed this, but how about Jason... Johnny Bench Castro. Yeah, I said it. He's put up, Stephen, an 876 OPS. Well, and that's why it's so intriguing. You know, the Astros signed him to a two-year deal. You thought that he was going to get a little more of the catching duties. I mean, you knew the machete was going to be the number one guy. But I just couldn't understand why Dusty was playing him so much of the time, you know, and not playing Jason Castro. Now, Jason Castro... He's not never going to be, you know, confused for Mike Trout or Tony Gwynn or one of those guys. But his hitting is definitely better. He he's a, a capable catcher defensively. So why not give him more playing time? Because when he's been in there, he's proven that he can be effective. So it's really no surprise to me that he has gotten going the way he is. There are rumors and rumblings that he put up these kind of numbers for the 2013 Astros, but since none of us were allowed to watch that season, thanks to our local cable providers, I've <laughs> always assumed it was just hearsay. Well, it is true, Robert. He did. And of course, you know, those 2013 Astros were pretty bad. They really weren't worth watching, but he, he was one of the few highlights, I'd say. He was one of the bright spots of the team back then, yes. Final note on the Astros, anything that we haven't covered yet Stephen. it's uh, not a fun week to talk about them this week well it isn't but again as I say it's May and you do have some excitement you, you've got some great teams coming to town and uh, you know the the fact that you're allowing a lot more fans in the ballpark now that that means things are certainly getting back to normal so hopefully it will create some excitement over the next week or so in this homestand but uh, all that excitement is really not going to matter much if, if the Astros don't win at least the majority of these games. But I'm not going to lie to you, Robert. I I didn't feel good about the Yankee series, and the Astros didn't show themselves well in that. I don't feel good about this Dodgers series. It's only two games. You know, the, the starters just need to go deeper. Uh, you might get that from Frankie on Tuesday, but I don't think you're going to see that from Luis Garcia. He hasn't shown a tendency to pitch more than four or five innings. 
So that bullpen's going to rear its ugly head in the Dodger series and beyond. So we just, you know, I'm trying to keep the optimism going as much as I can and just hope that the Astros can start getting hot at just the right juncture, like right now. Yeah, you said more fans in the stand. They're they're at 100 capacity now, and yep. as long as you wear a mask, or, or as long as you got a vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask in the ballpark. So yeah, that that's that's good news for them. And I I thought maybe we could make it through a week without needing to make fun of the Texans, but then that Casario came through for me. He waived quarterback Ryan Finley, who they just traded a six round pick for only two months ago. That means it only took Casario, Stephen, four months as a Texans GM to literally throw a draft pick in the garbage. Yeah, and you got a lower draft pick in return for him. Whether you get a seventh rounder, and then you sign another former Bengal who, uh, well, he's played with a number of teams, actually, uh, over the last few years. I've lost count of how many. But the Bengals were one of them. Driscoll, Jeff Driscoll, he's one and eight as a starter. So so you get rid of Finley. You know, I, I guess you didn't like the, the first two phases of the off-season workouts, so you just dump him and you, you signed Driscoll, who's really, at least from a record standpoint, not much better. He's a journeyman, and you wasted a draft pick and got a lower draft pick. I, yeah, I'm still scratching my head on that one, Robert. Don't don't understand it. Yeah, and Stephen, I'd like to hear what you thought of the incredible scene in South Carolina for an athlete that's actually in our age bracket. We know who we're talking about, but let's hear a conversation first that I had yesterday with a very cool guest. Here it is. Biggest moment of a legendary career. Phil defeats Father Time. Joining us is a legend in Houston sports journalism, the Houston Post columnist from 1977 to 1995, sports radio host at 610 and 740 back in the day, and the Channel 13 Extra Points panelist. Oh, my God, we know him from everywhere, and we're glad to welcome back Kenny Hand, who's currently the associate publisher for Texas Lynx Magazine. So I thought Kenny would be the perfect person for some perspective on Phil Mickelson's unreal run at the PGA Championship. Great to have you back on the show, Kenny. Robert, always great to be with you. What was your feeling as you watched Mickelson on Sunday? I mean, that was just magical. It was. It was almost beyond magical. You know, Phil's gone through a lot of physical changes. He had weight issues, and now he's fasting at different times, you know, 36 hours worth of fasting. I don't know if I know I couldn't do something like that as near as I am to Cleveland cafeteria here, but <laughs> you got to give, you got to give Phil a lot of credit on a number of fronts. He doesn't need the money to keep playing golf. It's all about achievement. It's all about reinventing himself. If you will, at the halfway point of the PGA championship, I was rooting for him, but I had a lot of doubts if he could finish 36 more holes against the field of the young Turks that are out there, but you have to realize what Phil's done in reinventing himself. He's, I mean, he's not svelte, but he's a lot slimmer than he used to be. And he still drives the ball really far. I mean, this is not some guy that's five, seven and one fifty. I mean, Phil's a pretty big, big guy. Uh, and he outdrove Brooks Kepka, who's one of the longest drivers on the PGA tour. You know, Phil hit a, 200 and I mean a 366 yard drive on 16 and you couple that with his incredible short game that he's always had I think the best of all time 
incredible sand save that he had. Um, and Robert, I think one of the most important shots and trickiest shots and critical shots to this whole thing is what people have overlooked over the last 48 hours. That little punch out from the native grasses, if you will, right off the green on 17. And we hit his shot a little bit long in there and it rolled into the native grasses. And that ball was buried in the native grasses. And Phil bogeyed the hole. That was his second shot. He punches that out and then is able to get a bogey out of it when who knows where that ball could have gone in any direction. If you anybody's played golf before, if they saw that lie, I mean, that's not something that he can just whack out of there with his 64-degree wedge and take this wild big swing. I mean, he had to be precise like a surgeon in punching that out to a distance that he could – that he could two putt and go on to the final hold. So what he did was absolutely amazing to me at the age of 50. And uh, I think what Julius Boros did in 1968 in San Antonio, when he was 48 years old and was the previous oldest winner of a major was also incredible. Julius had heart issues his whole life and was a little bit heavy himself and what Julius did in San Antonio was something for the ages, really. He beat Arnold Palmer and Bob Charles down the stretch to win in 68. And a lot of people just thought, well, there's not going to be another golfer that is older than 48 that wins a major. Because, you know, Robert, when you go back and look in history, a lot of golfers just didn't take care of themselves. I mean, they were either, you know, heavy or they drank a lot. They partied a lot. And the modern day guys are really generally taking care of themselves and they work out. And uh, so there may be another guy that comes along that's over 50 years old. If they want to play that long, they won't have to, if they win a lot of money, but they keep themselves in really good shape and it could happen. Somebody, somebody could come along and break Phil's record. I want to get back to what happened on Sunday in a second, but you saw Nicholas at the masters at age 46. I, I know you have vivid memories of that. Do you think what Mickelson did, was it as big as Nicholas as an event or as a feat in the sport? I think Nicholas winning in 86 at the masters will always go down as better than what Phil did because of the percent. It was Jack Nicholas. And no one expected Jack Nicholas to, to tame Augusta like that and win the tournament. I personally, I think what Phil did is, is every bit as good. He was four years older. And as good as Phil Mickelson is, he's not Jack Nicholas. And so I think what Phil did is at least as good as what Nicholas accomplished. That's my opinion. Nicholas certainly had people that were after him and chasing him in 1986 that were that were great players I don't mean that it's just that I think when Phil won this tournament it really really came out of the blue I mean he hadn't done much in a number of years and Phil was 300 to 1 odds <laughs> so I can't remember what Nicholas would have been at the Masters I'm sure they the odds were very high then too but I don't think they were 300 to 1 I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was five years since Nicholas had won his previous major. It was eight years since Mickelson had won. It was 2013 was his last major. 
Yeah, and and I think the difference is is that it was Jack Nicklaus, I mean, the arguably the greatest golfer of all time. He put Tiger in up there in that argument as well. But Phil is probably probably not still considered to be in the top ten of all time greatest golfers. I think he's certainly on his way to be in the Golf Hall of Fame, but I think he's probably on the outside looking in as far as the top ten. Nicholas arguably was the best who ever lived. So it, it was an uh, amazing accomplishment what Nicholas did in '86. But again, that's Jack Nicholas, and maybe. I don't know. I just don't think anybody saw this coming from Phil Mickelson, except maybe his caddy, his brother, Tim, and his family members and his coach and some of the close people in his circle. I had to laugh on Sunday because as you were watching those last few holes, it couldn't have been more Mickelson. I think I said on Twitter, this was so Phil Mickelson because he's getting into trouble and getting out of trouble. He's in the crowd. He's in the water. He's in a sand. You know, it's he's everywhere all over the course on Sunday and just escaping time after time. And you know, what's incredible about what you're saying is that with the field chasing him, a lot younger guys, including Louis Oosthuizen and, and obviously um, injured Brooks Kepka, who's not yet back from his, knee operation he's still recovering from that and nursing that along but th- these are very very talented guys that are chasing Mickelson and with all his foibles <laughs> you would think that somebody could have stepped to the fore and taken control but that shows you how difficult Kiowa was as a as a test for the best players in the world I mean judging the wind shifting one way or the other and now it's different this day than the next day. And it's, I, I was just so shocked that Phil just managed to keep his composure, managed to keep his focus, which he keeps talking about how his focus is literally on keeping his focus. And he hits some amazing shots interspersed with what you're talking about. I mean, like, Phil, what was that shot he just hit? And then he comes back and hits this amazing shot onto a green that you're thinking, well, lesser guys would have been rattled by what he just did two shots ago. And that's not Phil, not that kind of guy. He doesn't get, he's never gotten that rattled, really. Uh, even if he's wound up losing a tournament and kind of lays dormant for a while and you never hear much from him in terms of um, the leaderboards for quite a while. But he still has plenty of ability. And I think he's tightened his swing up immeasurably. Yeah, he's still going to have some wayward shots. But over the last five or six years, it seemed to me like every time I watched him, I'm going, wow, has he ever been measured for a driver? <laughs> you know, like he always looked to me like he was hitting maybe the wrong shaft or something because it was just always so far to the left or always to the right. I just don't know how you can play that way. And I think he got really disgruntled with himself and his game. And maybe some of that's taken better care of him, his body and eating better. And as I mentioned, he's doing the fasting and all of this stuff. And I think it all combined there in this one four day stretch where he was the old Phil Mickelson, the unbeatable Phil Mickelson, the Phil Mickelson that had the resolve that he did when he first started winning early on in his career. If there's one thing that I wish is that we had a tiger cam 
on Sunday, looking at Tiger's reaction as everything was going on. Wouldn't that be priceless? But I was thinking about this, Kenny. You know, everybody always has talked about the difference in electricity and magnetism between Tiger Woods and everybody else in golf. But I'm going to say this, and this is maybe just me personally, but I feel like Mickelson has as big a Q rating as any golfer that I've ever seen outside of Tiger. And I think the difference between Tiger and Mickelson isn't as great as it is between Mickelson and the other guys in golf. I was fixated by it on Sunday. And I think it wasn't just because he was 50 years old. It was because it was Phil Mickelson too. I think that had a lot to do with it. I also think it was interesting that uh, it wasn't just Ricky Fowler or John Rahm or the um, current stars, the current guys on tour that are bigger names that, um, that hugged Phil after the round or tweeted if they were long gone from the course, but it was Tiger himself, the biggest rival that Phil had and Phil could never overcome Tiger. Tiger always beat Phil, but even Tiger uh, who probably still doesn't like Phil very much. And Phil probably didn't like Tiger very much, if truth to tell. But even Tiger, watching what we watched, had great respect for what Phil did. What did you think of the crazy crowds, both in their enthusiasm and also in the crowd control? This is absolutely embarrassing for the PGA Tour. There are no excuses why they couldn't have immediately apologized. Now, I'm not sorry. It took people by surprise. I'm not going to hammer them as far as their lack of security and being overwhelmed incessantly here because of the fact that it did take most people by surprise. Anybody that says they could have foreseen that kind of a throng intervening with both Mickelson and Kepka, poor Kepka and his caddy, you couldn't even see him. I don't know where they were for a while caught up in the, you know, all those nut jobs, some of them drunks, obviously, uh, been drinking all day. Who knows? You couldn't have foreseen the size of it, but you could have foreseen Mickelson's popularity going into the final day of a major like this PGA, trying to win being the oldest player at age 50. They could have foreseen that and had a little bit more security. Going forward, Robert, they're going to have to deal with this. This isn't the first time that's happened, obviously. It's happened with Tigers crowds several times. It's happened many times at the British Open. But this is just, I mean, this is scary. I mean, okay, nobody got hurt seriously. But don't say that to Brooks because Brooks sounded like his knee hurt quite a bit from getting jostled and shoved and who knows what happened in that crowd. If they can't protect the two golfers that are trying to finish a round of golf, they're still playing. Think about this. This is what I thought about. I don't know about you. I'm thinking, can you imagine at an NFL game and the kicker's on his way out to the field to kick a winning field goal and the crowd rushes the field behind him? Yeah. They wouldn't allow that. You imagine if James Harden's getting ready to, shoot a free throw when he was playing for the Rockets in the playoffs. And all of a sudden they let all the fans spill out of Toyota center onto the court behind him. What kind of nonsense are they allowing? Okay. It's not the first time it's happened and nobody got, I understand all that, but this, they have got to beef up security, you know, ropes mean ropes, right? And sir, you need to, 
ma'am, you need to stand behind the ropes. I mean, they do that on the fairways, right? You don't see anybody coming onto the fairways while somebody's on the sixth hole or the eighth hole, but they allow them to do this while the tournament is still taking a look. I mean, Kepka still had a chance, albeit very slim. I mean, he would have had to birdie the 18th on about a, what, about a 20, 20 to 25 foot putt. And Mickelson would have had to like three jack from 15 feet, but it was still possible. And you had these nut jobs out there. They just absolutely took over and overpowered. I feel sorry for the poor security and volunteer people that were there trying the best they could. They just didn't have enough. And so going forward, the PGA is going to have to address this elephant in the room because it's not one elephant. It's a herd of elephants in the room. It was even more surprising for me and that this is, you know, still in a pandemic here and and you got all these people (laughs) breathing on the players right on top of them, surrounding them, you know, and they're all jammed up tight against each other. Um, I, I, I get that I, people were a little bit more excited because they hadn't been out a lot the last year, Kenny. They were, you know, seeing an event that was just extraordinary at the same time. And maybe get, you get caught up in that. But I agree with you. I, I think this is about the organizers, especially, you know, we're, coming, we're, we're right still in the midst. You feel like it's getting towards the end. And I, I get that, you know, things have eased up a little bit. But we're, we're, we're still trying to get rid of this pandemic that everybody kind of seems to be forgetting about. Well, exactly. And, and I go back to another thing is like on the fairways. Can you imagine? Would they tolerate? Would they tolerate 20 people coming through the ropes? On a on on a six eight hole the thirteenth hole of any tournament, not just a major. If they had twenty people that just went through the ropes and started trying to shake hands and commiserate with the players, they wouldn't allow that. They, I mean, there'd be outrage, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of outrage on this. In fact, last night I watched the entire you know, Golf Channel, everything I saw. There wasn't one thing from the PGA that said we're sorry. We apologize to both Phil and especially Brooks. It was a lack of planning on our part. We're sorry. We wish we had planned better. We will in the future. But they just, they never apologize for that. What I think is a huge gaffe. And it's dangerous because we're living in a time where you don't know what's going to happen when you've got that big a thong. Maybe the only answer for Kepka was to try to, once he saw Phil's approach shot hit the 18th green, maybe he in retrospect, should have just stayed put and not gone forward. But I don't know that he had a choice at that time. I think he was probably too far up the fairway and just got caught up in it and there wasn't anything he could do. But let me tell you, I mean, if somebody wanted to hurt Brooks Kepka, they could have. It would have been hard to catch him because there are just hundreds and hundreds of people there. The last thing I want to ask you about with this whole thing is just Phil Mickelson himself and his personality and, and who he is. And, you know, I, I don't know how much you've been around him, but I, I'm sure you've been around him a little bit. Maybe, you know, people that have got a chance to interact with him. What kind of guy is, is Phil Mickelson? He seems to be a lightning rod at times. And you hear some people that uh, he's the worst guy ever. He used to be called a little fake as a personality and, and, and that sort of the stuff. What's the real story behind him? I think Phil's grown up a lot. I think maybe early on when I didn't know him that well, when he first came on tour, but I think there was a lot, I think adolescence 
was a lot to blame for the his the perception of Phil being a little aloof or a little standoffish sometimes. I think Phil grew into the role that he thought he should have as a PGA performer, that it's more than just your golf. You have to try to be the best you can, an ambassador for the sport. And you have to try to have patience with stupid questions like I might ask him or other reporters might ask him. Uh, and I think I think he matured. And when Phil matured, I think along came the crowd that he never really would have had early on. I think he embraced people rooting for him rather than rejecting the job, so to speak, that it was to navigate through all the people, the autograph seekers, the well-wishers and all of those things. And, and not just that, but the criticism of people in the crowd or the people in the media that said, you'll never be Tiger Woods. You'll always be second to Tiger Woods. And I think it was just a process of not only growing up, but deep down, I think Phil Mickelson is a good person. My experiences with him have always been very, very good. Uh, When they had the shell Houston open here for many years, he was as gracious as he could be and answered every last question anybody had for him. Robert, you know, this is true as anybody that er, er, we, you know, the fans and the media can pick their favorites. I like this guy, or I don't like that guy. And some of it is perceived. Some of it may be true, but I think there was a perception that Phil was a little bit too big for the britches. Okay. And I never bought into that. I, I think it was, I think it was just Phil a lot of times, fighting this perception that was more probably like reality that he was just not as good as Tiger Woods. Well, who is as good as Tiger Woods? I think it took Phil a long time to come to terms with the fact that he was an awfully good player, future Hall of Famer, one of the best who ever put a golf club in his hands, but not as good as Tiger Woods. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, everybody's about who's the best, you know, it's kind of where we are. Um, before I let you go, I, I do want to ask you about Texas Links Magazine. Tell us what's going on over there. Well, we're online right now. It's been hard to print. We haven't printed over the last year because um, COVID had a lot to do with that and where we could place the magazine. So we're still online and doing the best we can in that way. But we've been, you know, we've been doing it for 15 years, and I'd like to hope we could get back into print. I'm just not sure. We may just have to stay digital only for a while. Golf is one of those sports that you you might have thought wasn't hit as bad with the pandemic because of, you know, it, it's very essence, I guess. There's only four of you going out and it's outside and the whole thing. The, the thing about this last year that we went through with golf for the average golfer, you know, with the social distancing, a lot of the public golf courses had to make these policies and some of them are still in place. For instance, at Sharpstown and some other places here where um, you can only have one person per cart. And those are the, because of the COVID protocols and they were enforcing those as they should have. So there was a, I think in a lot of golfers' minds, it wouldn't be as fun uh, if they can't ride in the same cart as their buddy, but the more they got used to it, it's still the the same opportunity to go out and have fun with your friends. And I think that's why, there's been a renewed interest in golf and a lot of the courses are having increased business just because people have been the ones who didn't play a lot last year are pent up and they're ready to go out and play. And 
And I think what Phil Mickelson did is going to be good for igniting the interest overall and that people have in golf. I mean, Tiger did it a lot. Mickelson, you always have to have somebody, either you love them or you hate them. You know what I'm saying is the Yankees in baseball. Well, now it's probably the Astros nationwide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, isn't that a, isn't that funny? But um, you always have to have a villain or a hero, right? The, the people, well, you know, I'm a Cubs fan, but I hate the White Sox or vice versa, you know, and so in golf, it, you, you, it's nice when you have somebody that's either loved or hated at the top. Speaking of somebody that's loved, at least locally, did you notice Jim Nance dropped in a little, hey, the oldest living golf major winner uh, is his birthday. Yeah. And he, 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 or not his birthday, but he, 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 he dropped his name in there, I guess, somehow in, in, in the uh, final round. Did you notice that? Jackie Burke? You know, yes. And Phil, Phil has worked, you know, he's worked quite a bit before, at least a little bit before with Jackie out at champions and they worked on putting and Jackie would tell Phil, he put a bunch of golf balls in a circle on the green and said, now knock them all in. You have to knock all of them in or you have to start all over. Jackie told me that story one time. And I said, Jackie, I, if I were lucky, I could knock in one or two of the putts and then I'd miss and I have to start all over. And he said, oh, you're not any good though. uh but those are the 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 jackie burks of the world those are the people that make um the the backdrop of golf fun interesting and and look the drama that we had with mickelson can he finish all four rounds at the age of 50 and beat this kind of field like i said before i think some guy like brooks kepka if he keeps himself in shape he's what 31 if he's got 19 more years to be 50 but a guy like Brooks Kepka is in good enough shape that if he wants to play when he's 50 there should be no reason that some of these guys that are studs now can't be on the tour if they want to be when and I'm not talking about the champions tour I'm talking about the PGA tour when they're 50 having said that like I remember this Robert years ago when I was covering the Astros and Jose Cruz was in his late 30s pushing 40 but his didn't have an ounce of fat on his body. I said, Jose, do you think it's possible that another 10 or 12 years when you're 50, do you think you could still be playing in, in major league baseball and never hesitated? He said, no way. And that, and you know how slim and, and cut Jose Cruz was. Sure. I mean, so what he was saying is that in baseball and other sports, I mean, Tom Brady's a, an anomaly at 43 but there are just not too many football and baseball players that will reach over, you know, 40, 45. Nolan Ryan obviously was an aberration and, and Joe Necro, the knuckleball, because he threw the knuckleball aberration, but the golfers have a better chance at 50 than many guys. And the, the guys in the contact sports, there's no way they're going to reach 50. Their bodies won't hold up. They get, keep getting hit. Of course, you know, Mickelson and Kepka got hit in that crowd that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say Kepka will have a long career as long as he stays. That was away a contact from... sport, Robert. <laughs> yeah. As long as he stays from, away from those South Carolina crowds. And, you know, when, when I saw Mickelson on Sunday and everything unfold and it ended and I thought, well, the first person that I would love to talk to about all this stuff is you, Kenny. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and talking about this. It's a real pleasure catching up with you. Well, thank you. And I always enjoy talking to you, Robert. 
I'm back with Steven, and I'll give you the last word on the Phil Mickelson miracle. Well, I'll tell you what, Robert. I, the first thing that I thought about, first of all, glad you had Kenny Hand on. Love Kenny Hand. When I was growing up in Houston, my parents took the Post, not the Chronicle. So I have a lot of fond memories of the Post and Kenny Hand. So great to hear him, you know, kind of took me back to old times there. But, you know, getting to Phil, I mean, the first thing I thought about, and, and I know Kenny touched on this a little bit, is there are probably people sitting out there going, well, it's golf. I mean, of course he's 50 years old, he can still play. Listen, I, I've played golf before. No, I'm never going to be confused for a PGA player or, or even a, a weekend golfer, but I have played the sport before. You know, golf is a very intense game, especially from a mental focus standpoint. Look, I'm I'm older than Phil Mickelson, and I've got more than enough trouble focusing just on everyday tasks. It 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 really is a difficult game of concentration. And yes, golfers do need to keep in shape and work out. So what Phil Mickelson did on Sunday is a big deal in, in so many ways. Now, you know, what what Kenny said that when he was comparing it to Jack Nicholas in 1986, I agree in part with him. I mean, obviously, Jack Nicholson was a uh, Jack Nicholas rather is a greater golfer than Phil Mickelson. All you have to do is look at the record. So, of course, because he's Jack Nicholas, it, it may be a greater accomplishment in that vein. But, you know, let's be honest, 99 of the top 100 golfers in the world were playing in this tournament. So it's not as if Phil Mickelson was going up against a weak field. Then you add in the tough course that Kiowa Island was with the wind changes and all of that. And just the fact that Phil has been so far removed from winning a major since 2013 you know, it just it just makes it all the more sweeter. I think in some ways it's even greater just, you know, because of those factors. So uh, you just you, you can't help but but feel good about what's happened here and, and congratulate Phil. And it's great that uh, even Tiger chimed in on that. Did you get inspired like I was? I mean, I'm, I'm only a year younger than Phil, and I, I was inspired yesterday to go to the golf course. I got out of my car. I limped to the first hole, and then I got back in my car and went home. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that tweet, Robert. That, that's beautiful. I couldn't have put it better myself. But no, I think you, you have to draw inspiration from it because it proves it can be done. And it may not be the last time. You know, you, you look at some other close calls. Hey, Tom Watson was 59 and he almost won the 2009 British Open. He, he lost in a playoff, but he came close. Greg Norman was, I believe he was 53. And he had a lead going into the final round of the 2008 British Open, uh, only to lose that. So, you know, uh, yeah, Phil may not be the only one to crack that, especially if you look at today's golfers who do have a different workout regimen than, uh, let's say, you know, the old guys of the past in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So, yeah, it is possible. I, I don't know that you're going to see it every day, obviously, but it, it is not you know, far-fetched to think that it can't happen again. And I think Phil proved that it really can happen at age 50. I nearly forgot about Tom Watson. That was a great tournament. And just seeing Watson do that, that, that was amazing. And, you know, this just in, Stephen, right before you and I started talking today, the Rice Owls, uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Speaking of legends, they fired their baseball coach, Matt Braga, not a legend, but it turns out, uh, he was trying to replace a legend, and it's still hard to replace one. Remember that guy, Wayne Graham? 
Yeah, I certainly did. I, I did see that before we went on, and I was going to bring that up if we wanted to discuss it during the podcast. And, and it's it's been an interesting week in uh, college baseball around Texas because, yeah, Matt Braga got fired, and then uh, on Monday, Texas A&M fired their uh, baseball coach, Rob Childress, because they had a down season. Yeah, replacing Wayne Graham or any, replacing any legend, I don't know. I'd want to be the guy, Robert, honestly. Maybe I just am not that ambitious. But, you know, even Wayne Graham struggled in his last season as head coach of the Owls. But, gosh, you, you can't say enough about it. He put the Owls baseball program on the map, for goodness sake. So it's very difficult to replace somebody like that. And Matt Braga, he had a 15-year run at Tennessee Tech where, you know, had great success there. But obviously a, a different thing when you come even to a program like Rice. I mean, who would you think, you know, Rice firing – a coach because they didn't get to the college world series, but that just goes to show you how great the tradition of rice baseball is and has been, you know, I, I um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the NBA this week. Uh, we've, they've only played one game so far in the playoffs, but I, I'm going to get back to that maybe a little bit next week. But I, I did have one last note that might've got under the radar. Cause I want to go back to baseball and Baseball fans might have missed this story that's coming up as you and I are speaking. It's going to be tonight, Tuesday night. Umpire Joe West is scheduled to work his record 5,376th game, most in Major League Baseball history, passing Hall of Famer Bill Clemsmark, which has been around for 80 years. He made his Major League debut in 1976. What do you think of, Stephen, when I... When I say Joe West, I think of a lot of controversial calls and a lot of fans that are wondering why he's still umpiring. Uh, that's that's what I think of. So, yeah, it, it is amazing, but it, it is quite an accomplishment. Bill Clem, you know, Bill, you know, most people wouldn't know him because he was his, what in the 30s and 40s. But he was one of those umpires that like to put on a show. Uh, Joe West puts on a show of a different kind, usually ticking off a, a lot of baseball fans. So, you know, including Astros fans. But. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Wow, 1976. I guess I knew he'd been in the league or, or you know been in the major leagues a long time, but I guess I did forgotten that he'd gone back that far. Fortunately for Joe West, he's got Angel Hernandez to sort of take a yeah. little bit of the heat off of Might him. Might actually be worse. Yeah, he he's the most bigger than life umpire in history too. He's appeared in two movies, recorded two albums, appeared at the Grand Ole Opera, sung with Mickey Gilly, Merle Haggard, and Johnny Lee been a pallbearer for Boxcar Willie, played on the Celebrity Players Golf Tour, and designed his own chest protector. I mean, that's just a little bit of his life, Stephen. In other words, you're saying he's an umpire that's also a personality. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, something. Yeah, very rare indeed, and, you know, not exactly the maybe the uninteresting... Scott Foster or something. I don't know. Maybe Scott Foster's interesting. I don't want to pick on Scott Foster. But yeah, just interesting story. Joe West is uh, breaking a record that I, I don't think we're going to see it be broken again, Stephen, because I don't know if people realize, but umpires now only do 120 games and the rest of the time they'll go and they'll do the uh, video replay in New York and, and they, they have some days off in there. And so it's not like it used to be where they would do every game. No, they rotate a lot more than they used to. And I just think, you know, the longevity. I mean, you don't even see players uh, playing quite as long in baseball as, you know, the, the 15, 20-year careers, uh, did they still happen, but certainly not to a great extent. And it's kind of the same with umpires. Yeah, it, if that record is broken, it's, it's not going to be in our lifetime, Robert. It'll be a long time. 
Yeah, for sure. And and you know what? Um, we're going to set a record because uh, I think we're going to do this. What you got another forty years in you? <laughs> I don't know the way the way that I have to mentally focus these days. I mean, maybe I should take some tips from Phil Mickelson because. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that for another 40 years. Yeah, work on your podcast diet so you can be in good shape. That's it. Exactly. Working out. Got got to got to lift the weights and the uh maybe make sure my my vocal cords are in good shape. Well, we're going to wrap it up and remind everybody, you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, email info at houstonsportstalk.net. The Astros with a huge week this week. Hopefully, we'll be talking about some good stuff. In the meantime, stay healthy and safe everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.